different jobs require different shifts. The big thing that I hope people can take away from our conversation and from reading the book is this idea of when. When do I need to be this way? And when do I need to be that way? And let's add some intention to when I am this way and when I am that way. And at the core of the book, that is what it is about. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Brian Levins into the podcast. Brian Levinson is the founder of Strong Skills, which provides executive coaching and mental performance coaching, speaking and consulting to elite organizations, performers, and leaders. He's been fortunate to work with CEOs, professional athletes, and with teams in the NBA, NHL, and MLS, Division I athletic departments, the Federal Reserve, the Department of Homeland Security, Hilton, Young Presidents Organization, and many other organizations. Today, we talk about why Brian wrote his book, Shift Your Mind, Perfectionism and Adaptability, the importance of joy in play to performance, how to help athletes play with more joy, and the number one thing that keeps teams from reaching their potential. Two quick things before we hop into the conversation. First, this week we're kicking off the second round of free virtual book clubs covering the Coach's Guide to Teaching. I'd love to have you hop into one of the book clubs. There's two options. Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Central Time or Sundays at 2 p.m. Central Time. It's not too late to register, but there's only a few spots left. The book clubs are four weeks long and dive into one chapter from the book. These clubs will cover chapter three. Here's what one coach had to say about the book clubs. He didn't quite know what to expect when he signed up, but Coach Fallon said that being a part of the book club and having a chance to share ideas and bring them to life has been absolutely the perfect way to read the book for him. If you want a taste of what the book clubs are like, go check out bonus episode three or bonus episode four for a taste of what the book clubs are like. I still have a few spots left in each book club, but sign up quick before they kick off. Go to cgtbookclubs.com or click the link in the show details to sign up for free and claim your spot. And as always, if you enjoy this episode and want to get the free podcast notes, go to coachesclubpod.com. Now to my conversation with Brian Levinson. Enjoy the episode. Brian, I'd love to just start here. Uh, what was the problem that you identified for performers that inspired you to write Shift Your Mind? Luke, really excited to be here and chat with you and enjoy chatting with you before we started recording. And I'm sure we'll chat again after we finish recording. I've spent the last 10 years working with athletes and athletes at all kinds of levels, high school, college, pro. And regardless of the level, I would notice that a lot of these athletes didn't have clarity about how they were setting their mind in preparation and how they were setting their mind in performance. And I remember I was at a Starbucks working with a collegiate golfer, and we started to talk about this idea of, are they humble in preparation and confident in performance? And they were struggling. They were actually bringing their humility into their golf performance, and it was getting in the way for them. It was causing them to doubt themselves, to question themselves, to not play up to their potential or their standards or their ability. 
And so we sat there in the Starbucks and we started listing, well, what are other ways that your preparation mind might creep into your performance mind? And we just created a list. We put, you know, a pen, took a pen to a piece of paper, put a line down the middle of the page and started listing them. And we started coming up with all these ideas. And as we started to do that, I started to meet with clients that were basketball players or football or soccer or softball or baseball. And there was this constant, obvious problem that people were either bringing their preparation mind into their performance or their performance mind into their preparation. And once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. And when I started to notice my clients, when they would play at their worst, they often had the mindsets uh, switched. And when they were at their best, they often had clarity around what they needed in performance and what they needed in preparation. So um, when something's that obvious for me, I was like, I got to write a book on this. I got to explore it. I got to research it. I got to keep talking to my clients about it. And, you know, it, it took me about four years to write the book, but it was a real labor of love because I saw it in my clients and I saw how when they had clarity around their preparation mind and their performance mind, they would often perform better. So that's the background on the book. Yeah, I really like that. And so interesting. And and then to think about how how that also applies to coaches too, right? So, I mean, you were specifically talking about mostly your work with athletes and then performing. Uh, would you tell me... Have you had experience or, or thoughts on how that applies to coaches as well? My journey is actually going to be interesting to you and I think the listeners because, so as I said, I spent the last 10 years working with athletes and I still work with athletes. I still get phone calls from athletes in all kinds of different sports. But what happened next was I started to get phone calls from executives who either played college sports or watched sports or felt a connection to sports. And they would say, Brian, I kind of think of myself as a head coach, or I think of myself as a salesperson, but also as a golfer or a basketball player. And and so they were talking about the similarities in their mindset. So I actually went back to school for executive coaching. And now today, a lot of my business is coaching executives. I also coach athletes. But the big piece that I started to also do is coach sports coaches. And when I work with those sports coaches, we often talk about shifting their mind as well. Um, And it it, it is, I think it's a massive challenge for coaches because they spend so much time preparing. Let's use football, American football. You spend six days a week working on everything. And then Sunday or Saturday, if you're in college or pro or even high school, if Friday night, um, you spend all week preparing and then you've got a three hour window to perform. And so what often happens with coaches are they spend so much time in preparation mode and they need to, but they don't often shift out of that mode when the lights are on and when they're in the arena and when they're performing. So I love working with sports coaches because so much of their job is strategy. So much of their job is planning and preparation. And if they use that mindset and performance, it can absolutely, I think, and I, I know can, can get in the way. So I'm happy to dive into the shifts, but I, I I think that they're really helpful for, for coaches and, and leaders uh, to even zoom out a little bit. You're a teacher. For teachers, when are you preparing the lesson and when are you actually performing in class? Teachers actually perform more than, than coaches do. Mm. Yeah, I, I, let's do it. Let's dive into maybe, I don't know, one or two of your, uh, I don't know, favorites, the right, 
right word, or maybe the most important for coaches in your experience, the mindset shifts. There's two that I'll dive into. Um, One is this idea of work and play. And I've worked with coaches at every level. And I'll often ask the coaches like, Hey, did you have fun at the game? And I'm telling you, a lot of coaches will say no, (laughs) like, like they don't actually coach with joy. It's stressful. It's intense. And it's almost like they can't breathe. And then it's a sign of, it's it's like a release that happens. Uh, There are other coaches that I've worked with that do coach with joy, but the work and play uh, shift is the idea that, Hey, you need to put the work in in preparation. There is a job component to your job as a coach. This is important stuff. Before we started recording, you even said, Hey, coaches are even in some ways more important than teachers at the high school level. It's a job. This let's take this seriously. You're, you're leading young women or young men. Um, this is an important, powerful position that you have. Let's, let's own it. So I think of work as really, it's, it's a job. It's a means of earning a livelihood. Whereas play is about joy. It's an activity. We play basketball. We play the violin. If you're an actor, you're on a play, you're in a play on um, Broadway. So playing is part of sports. We have to play. And you watch elite teams. We just finished March Madness. Baylor played basketball in the championship. They were playing ball. And we've all seen teams that bring work into the performance and they stiffen up and they take it too seriously and they don't have perspective of playing. So for coaches, yes, put in the work. This is a job. But the game, the game day should be about playing. It should be about joy. If you can't have joy on game day, you're going to get burned out. It's going to be a rough go for you. Also, when I think about the other one is um, perfectionism. So preparation, we do as coaches need this demand for the highest standard of excellence. You have to try to perfect your craft. Attention to detail is massive for coaches and watching film and scouting. There is so much perfectionism that goes in. And we need to be adaptable. What does adaptable mean? The ability to adjust oneself readily to different conditions. Maybe they press, maybe they go to a zone, maybe they're going to a box in one, maybe they're Xing out your shooter, right? So there, there needs to be adaptability for a coach in order to be successful because performance, a game is a wicked environment. We don't know what's going to happen. That's the beauty of sports. It's wicked. It, it is an environment that is unknown. And if we try to perfect an unknown environment, take COVID, it's an unknown environment. If you try to perfect the last year, good luck. But if you're adaptable, if you're agile, if you're able to be flexible, you're going to be better off when you're performing. So I think for coaches, those two, both work and play and perfectionism and adaptable are are really key. Yeah, uh, I would totally agree. And I kind of want to go deeper on both of them, but first let's, keep talking about uh, perfectionistic and adaptable. I want to push back a little bit on the perfectionistic one and just hear your thoughts on it. When I, when I hear that word perfectionistic, the thing that uh, maybe makes me nervous about that term as far as coaching goes, is I think it's easy for a lot of coaches to be so perfectionistic that they create an environment where their players don't feel like they can make mistakes. And we know research just tells us if there isn't a level of psychological safety, 
um, where players feel like they can make mistakes. Doug Lamov calls it a culture of error, where mistakes are something that are viewed as learning opportunities. Your team isn't going to perform at their best. And so how can coaches balance that perfectionistic tendency of, I have a high attention to detail, but I don't let that create an environment where my players feel like they have to be perfect. Yeah. So two parts here. One, I agree with you. Um, And I make a distinction between preparation, performance and practice. So a practice, the purpose of a practice is to get better. The purpose of a practice is either to get repeated proficiency, right? To know how we need to do it, the way we need to do that, that requires some perfection, but it also is about growing and learning. So a great practice, I think, involves form shooting, for example, and really perfecting your form shooting and, you know, time and score and learning how to deal with what can go on and failing and learning from that mistake and growing from it. So the first thing I would say is a practice needs to involve perfectionism and adaptability. Let's just stay on perfectionistic thinking. However, when we're talking about preparation, I would take that out of the practice. And when when I'm thinking about preparation for a coach, I'm thinking of watching film. I'm thinking of, um, it could be recruiting. It could be creating your uh, plan for your your practice plan. Um, It could be figuring out what you want to run. There does need to be this demand for the highest standard of excellence. And I'll even go to research here and there's different types of perfectionism. So um, there's something called high self-oriented perfectionism, which is generally associated with the most adaptive traits. It's amazing that adaptive is actually associated with high self oriented perfectionism. And it's really correlated with this greater productivity and success, including resourcefulness and assertiveness. And that was research done by a guy named Paul Hewitt and Gordon Flett. Um, And also uh, there was a Harvard business review that looked at, there was a group of researchers that shared that perfectionists are also motivated on the job. They work longer hours. They can be more engaged at work. So there is adaptive and maladaptive perfectionism, and that really deems whether or not it's helpful. So I wouldn't disagree with Lamov, and I wouldn't disagree with you. I think it's all about when. Um, I also believe that if you study the best coaches in the world, the best performers in the world, you'll notice that they do have a line of perfectionism in them, and they need to know when to flex that muscle and when to go into the adaptive muscle. And so those are some of my thoughts on, on perfectionistic. I think too often we say, don't focus on perfection. It's a bad thing. It stunts growth. It stunts the ability to make mistakes. And I don't fully disagree with that. I just disagree with that as a theory that we need to be that way all the time. I do think this high standard of excellence that perfectionism can bring the attention to detail is needed to make sure that we've earned the right to be able to adapt to an environment that's wicked. And I, I do believe that we need to stretch ourselves and, and make sure that our, our details are, are really um, clean and clear and, and really specific as far as what we needed to do to get better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think my maybe golden nugget out of what you just talked about was towards the beginning, and especially one of the places that coaches, I think, need to be more perfectionistic is in their practice planning. I know there are definitely coaches that will, that will, you know, 
plan it down to the minute. And I even think beyond just like planning an individual practice, being a bit perfectionistic or really attuning to the details of your entire program and even planning out um, almost like your a curriculum for your for your sport. I think that those are places absolutely where it's really powerful when coaches pay a ton of attention to the details of how things are going to operate and how they're going to work and, and aligning, you know, other coaches around that too. So I really, really and, like and Luke, that. One thing uh, I would say is for the book, the idea is a, it's not a panacea. So you're free to disagree. And for you, it might not be the thing. And I'm, I'm cool with that. This doesn't have to be all things to all people. However, I spent a lot of time focusing on these nine and they're very intentional and very thoughtful. And we left out 30 other ones. So know that this wasn't done half hazardly. Um, however, for certain jobs, a firefighter, a pilot, uh, someone in the military, someone in sales, a teacher, a coach, different jobs require different shifts. The big thing that I hope people can take away from our conversation and from reading the book is this idea of when. When do I need to be this way? And when do I need to be that way? And let's add some intention to when I am this way and when I am that way. And at the core of the book, that is what it is about. So we can disagree on language. And I, I'm absolutely game to have that conversation. I think language really matters. I spend a lot of time disagreeing with people for the book on what language we should use. And I, I'm good with that. At the core of the book, it's, it's this idea of polarity and this idea that we don't need to be one way all the time. And we need to get really clear as far as when we need to be one way and when we need to be another way. And if we can drill down on that and someone can create their own three shifts, like someone asked me, what would make you feel like the book was successful? Honestly, A, that I get people to think and B, that they create their own shifts and they create their own intention as far as how do I need to be in this environment? How do I need to be in that environment? And to realize that we have that ability inside of us to step into one version of ourselves here and another version of, ver version of ourselves there. And we're still being authentic. Like those are still different versions of ourselves, and it's okay. So giving people the freedom to step into their different whens, whether um, it is humble and arrogant or whether it is, you know, trusting the process, which is something that we hear all the time, or it is experimenting and, and trying new things or it's uncomfortable or comfortable. I think too often we say you have to be one way all the time. And that's really what the book is about. That's good. That's really good. And I totally agree with you on that. I think it's important for, yeah, like you said, the word just to be intentional about how you're operating in different spaces and contexts. Um, and, and so much of what I've been learning as I've been interviewing coaches and leaders is that for so many of these things, the answer is it depends. Like it, it just, it isn't always black and white and oftentimes, yeah, things, things are different depending on our context. Luke, uh, I almost called the book. It depends. Really? I almost called it. It depends. I, I, I went into like when matters or it depends and the, it depends idea really stemmed from taking a Myers-Briggs or a personality assessment. And I'm taking it and I go, well, sometimes I'm like this. And sometimes I'm like that. It really depends on the context or the environment. And I, at my core, I really do believe that it depends. Um, and I think great coaches, have rules, they have standards, they have values, but they also notice that they know they know when they are between the lines, they need to be agile, they need to be adaptable, they need to 
be willing to go for it. So um, I think it depends is, is a great phrase that I love. So I'm glad you said it. Yeah, absolutely. Circling back to something you mentioned earlier, I would love to just hear you talk about the importance of joy and play to performance. I think it's missing so often for athletes and I mean for coaches, you already mentioned that. Um, talk about the importance of it and, and maybe why it's missing. Well, Baylor basketball, obviously their whole culture is around this idea of playing with joy. They also bring in a spirituality component to that and, and talk about Jesus. Um, I'm not even a Christian, but I appreciate their desire to be true to themselves and what they value. And, and I, I think it's, it's inspiring. And I think the idea that they're emphasizing joy is needed in sports. We don't emphasize joy and fun especially as you get to higher levels. But I would even argue with our, with our youth, we miss out. Every study shows that kids want to have fun. That's why they're playing sports. But I think it's an unfair advantage. I think playing with joy is, is helpful. I was talking to a pro basketball player today about it. Like he has been in a slump and been struggling. And we talked about like, how much joy are you playing with? And he said, I'm not. And so what comes first, the success or the joy? I don't know, but I seem to notice that people that are playing well tend to be playing with joy. And so why wouldn't we emphasize joy, not just for players, but for coaches, because you're going to get burned out if it's all work all the time on the sideline and it's not going to be a healthy lifestyle. And I think we glamorize professional coaches or collegiate coaches, but if you ask them, a lot of them are actually not necessarily performing with, with joy and it, it, it becomes a brutal job. I don't care how much money they're making. I don't think anyone wants to go like success without joy is failure. It's failure. That doesn't mean you don't have to do hard things. That doesn't mean that at times it's not going to be joyful. I get it. But who wants to be quote unquote successful without having any joy in their life? And I've met really wealthy people that don't have joy. I'm telling you, I think that's a failure. I really do. I, at least for me, I don't want to live my life without joy and, and play. So the idea of amusement, it, it is an unfair advantage for performance, but beyond that, like, what are we doing here? Sports is meant to be fun. It, it, it helps us. Um, it helps us in so many ways. So I do think that we, we often can take it too seriously. And so I, I really think for coaches, it, first of all, if your players aren't having fun, what's the point? And second of all, if you're not, what's the point? Like we should have joy. And so I, I, I think it's, it's just such a massive piece. It's at the core of what I value. Um, it's in my mission statement to enjoy success. I just think success without joy is pretty meaningless. That's really powerful. Totally agree. It, it always blows my mind how many, yeah, coaches and teachers, don't enjoy their work and don't, don't enjoy their job. I'm like, man, if you think that spending a bunch of time around, you know, young people is going to make your life better. Like if you're not enjoying this, it's, it's not going to make your life any better because it's, it's hard a lot of the time. I, I'd Luke, like to- I, Luke, I read a research once that said the average person spends about 13 uh, years and two months of their life at work. So look, I understand there are jobs. I'm fortunate to work in the human space, right? Like this is a dream for me that I get to work with people all day and it's what I love doing. And I understand that there are some jobs that are um, 
are more difficult than my job and are more monotonous. Um, so I'm fortunate and I'm really grateful for that. And I'm privileged for that. And regardless of what your job is, how can you find joy for those 13 years and two months? Because if, if there's no joy in it, like that's a big percentage of people's lives. Um, and I think that's just a shame. So I, especially coaching, like you're in sports, <laughs> like, come on, yeah. this is, this is not a, a job that shouldn't involve fun and joy. So yeah. Um, yeah, I could talk about that all day. I really yeah, could. well, I, I want to ask you, you mentioned the player that you were talking to today who you just asked, how, you know, are you playing with joy? And so I'd love to just know maybe what could coaches do and or what do you do in a situation where you're working with an athlete who isn't playing with any joy? Smile, first of all, is something that we can do. And I'm smiling right now. People probably won't see that, but like it, it literally is something that's in our control that we can do. So smiling, I smiled and then Luke smiled. It's contagious. It's like yawning is contagious. So is smiling. So it's not only good for us, it's good for the environment around us. Gratitude. It is this amazing medicine to combat stress. Um, gratitude is just a massive piece of the puzzle. Touching, the research on touching in basketball is pretty cool. I mean, research has shown that touching the teams that win more touch, they high five, they fist bump. Um, it's one of the challenges of being in COVID. It's like, what do we do? Do we hug? Do we touch? You know, for those of us that are not playing games and I miss that. I miss the fist bump. I miss the touching. I miss the high fives. I miss the hugs. Like, so those are three things, right? We can focus on gratitude. We can do a gratitude journal. We can talk about what we're grateful for. The blue angels have a phrase where they say, glad to be here. And I love that phrase. And they have a very stressful job that requires perfection and requires them to be really on on when it comes to the details, but they also remind themselves that they're grateful to be there. So I think gratitude, smiling, high fives, human connection, it can bring out passion and joy. One of the things I love to watch is when a player comes to the sideline and they put their arm around a coach or the coach puts their arm around them. And you see that it's a connection, it's a passion and it's a joy. I was watching the NCAA tournament. I won't mention the team, but I was watching the men's NCAA tournament and there was a team that had a bunch of four-year starters and they were expected to play really well and they lost the game. And I watched them go to the sideline as the game was winding down the players. And I watched them interact with their coach. The coach didn't hug them. I think he actually shook their hand, the head coach. And I was like, these kids are crying. Like these kids are devastated. This is their last game as a college basketball player. And he didn't hug them. And then I watched the kids go down the sideline. I saw a lot of the assistant coaches hugging the kids. And I texted one of my buddies who's a coach in, in college basketball. I said, I just want to share this observation with you. He said, that's really interesting, right? Like, and then you watch other coaches, the head coaches and the players come out and they're hugging them and they're embracing them. And you know, you even watched Gonzaga when those kids came off and, you know, then they stayed connected after they lost and they huddled up after the game. Like, I think those are the things that matter in the long run. Whoever wins the game is who wins the game, but the relationships, the hugs, the, the joy, the passion, like coaches, I think they have a lot to do with the culture of passion and joy. And once again, I think it's an unfair advantage, but it's also the right thing to do. And it's, it's, it's how I I'd want to be. I'd want to be a part of a culture that 
smiles, that hugs, that high fives, that supports, that claps, that cheers. So for that pro athlete, we talked about him being a change maker within his organization. So what can he do to smile? What can he do verbally to speak to the team? Uh, how can he create energy and enthusiasm and passion with his team? Uh, and so that was the crux of our conversation today. That's really good and, and really practical. And as you're talking about that, the phrase that just kept coming to my mind was get outside of yourself that to experience more joy in our performance. The irony of it is it often happens when we focus less on ourselves and our own performance. And I think that's so powerful. And, and I mentioned this to you before we started, but I'm coaching a little fourth grade team right now. And, and I put a huge emphasis on that of, of looking for opportunities to celebrate your teammates when they succeed and looking for ways to help a teammate succeed. And just the amount of fun and joy I've seen them play with has been amazing. Right. Awesome. And, and it hasn't been perfect, but they're starting to embrace that too. Of like, okay. Like we're going to play and it's going to be fun. And, and we're going to take the perspective off of ourselves and we're going to look for how we can set someone else up for success. And there's so much joy in that. So I, I, I love that. Two, two things I'll bring to mind. One, there was a, there's an amazing high school coach in San Francisco, Randall Besselow. Uh, I mentioned him in the book. He's one of the first coaches I spent a lot of time with. And every single game before the kids took the court, he would look at them and say, play with joy, play with joy, three words. And I'll tell you that team played with joy every single night. It was amazing to watch. And he is as good a coach as any that I've been around. I just reconnected with him. Uh, a few months ago and we hadn't talked in 10 years. It was amazing, but he's still at it and he's still telling his guys to play with joy. The other thing that I, a phrase that I love is think like a pro and play like a kid because those fourth graders, they play with a reckless abandon, probably a fearlessness, um, a joy. Uh, and they don't necessarily think the game like a pro would. And you probably are trying to help them think the game a little bit, but I love that fearlessness that, fourth graders bring to a game. And to me, the best performers in the world play as if they're a kid, but they're still thinking the game with all the knowledge and all the experience that they have. And so the combination of those two things can be really, really powerful. Yeah, that's really good. And, and Brian, you work with obviously a lot of teams and organizations. I would love to just know that in your experience working with these teams and organizations, what do you think is the number one barrier that keeps these teams from reaching their potential? It's a really big question. I have an idea that I came to in my head first, but I want to make sure that that's the place that I want to go. I think it is. I, I think communication. Um, and when I think about communication, there's internal communication the dialogue that we have with ourselves. I mean, we talk to ourselves more than we talk to anybody in the world. So how are we communicating with ourselves? And then how are we communicating with each other? I think Steve Kerr was big on saying that I over communicate with our players. And I think a lot of us under communicate. I think especially men are, are poor communicators uh, to throw us under the bus a little bit. And I think communication as a life skill is just so, it's so massive. And I think for teams, whether they are in the corporate world or the sports world, 
when we don't communicate well, we live in a world of assumption. And when we live in a world of assumption, it causes all kinds of cracks within our organization. Even take it to relationships. It, you know, I see you have a ring on your finger, right? If you're if you're married and you have a poor communicator, it's going to be hard to have a good relationship and a good partnership. And so communication, what does that involve? It involves verbal, right? How are we, I mean, you're the English person, you probably know, right? Verbal and nonverbal. It involves body language. It involves tone. It involves what we actually say and the language we use. And so for me, besides talent, like everyone needs talent. Let's not sugarcoat it. Everyone talks about Baylor's culture, all that good stuff. It's true. And Gonzaga too. You know what else is good? They each have three or four pros on their roster. Like you need to have good players. I'm watching the women's final as well. I mean, they're ballers. Like these, these you have to be talented to be successful at any level. But if I'm looking at what gets in the way, I think poor communication gets in the way of a team maximizing their potential and their ability. And that goes across industries. I think you'll find the greatest organizations in the world are elite at communicating. And the ones that really struggle are often poor communicators. That, that, would, that would be my simple answer. I would want to think on that a little bit because I don't think I've ever thought of like, what's the primary thing that gets in the way? I think it's a great question, but I haven't really honed in on that, but communication is definitely one that I, I would think of. How do, how do you think about that, Luke? Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. It was a good question that I thought up, but I don't know that I have a great answer for it either. I, I think that, and I mentioned it earlier, I think one of the things in, in my experience, reflecting on the teams that I've been on, teams that I've coached, just any team or organization I've been in, like psychological safety is just so huge. Just the reality of every person there feeling safe and like they belong there. Um, I just don't, I just don't think we can spend enough time and effort ensuring that our people know that they belong and that they're a part of something that matters. Um, I'm a huge fan of Daniel Coyle's book, the culture code. And so that's, informed a lot of my thoughts and philosophies around it. But then it's also, as I've reflected on it, it's aligned with my experience too. And even just thinking, you know, specifically about, you know, the different classes that I teach and the kids that I have in those classes, there's even different periods within my schedule where the level of psychological safety in different classes that I teach, I can tell is different because there are some some groups of students that I have where I can tell they, they really feel safe to be themselves, to speak their mind, um, that that level is higher than it is in other groups. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's probably the thing that I would lean on first. Like, have you established a sense of belonging and psychological safety on your team? Because if that's not there, I, there's just so many problems that arise out of that. I agree with you. I think that's a better answer than the one I gave. Um, so that's going to be my answer going forward. Uh, a little more on psychological safety. Number one, I am. I said privilege earlier. I know that word people have a reaction to, but look, I'm I'm privileged in like every every. I grew up in an upper class community. I grew up in a amazing neighborhood with friends my age. I went to a, a great high school. I have two parents that are still together, and I have a great relationship with. I got relationships with my brothers, my friends. Like I I feel like I've 
been given a lot of things in this world and I'm grateful for that. Um, and one of the things that I've been given is safety. And so as a result, I think there are times where I don't go to safety first because I assume that other people feel safe because I feel safe in most environments. And what I've learned about that is I think you're spot on. If you don't have security or safety, it's really hard to create anything special. And because I feel safe all the time, I sometimes forget the fact that others might not. And it's a blind spot for me that I still need to work on. And I'm still working on it because I recognize that other people might not feel safe for a, a variety of reasons. And I think it's a really important thing. And then, you know, Google did the study um, that found that psychological safety was the number one thing that led to successful teams. And they defined it as, can we take risks on the team without feeling insecure or embarrassed? So back to your conversation with Lamov, they would agree with his idea of how perfectionism could get in the way. And I understand that perspective. And so I do think that you are you are spot on there. Also in that Google study, they did talk about structure and clarity. So they did talk about our goals, roles, and execution of the plans on a team clear. And that's where maybe the communication piece is, is really big, but I would probably change my answer to go psychological safety. Um, and then Google would say dependability. They'd say structure and clarity. They said meaning of work, impact of work. Um, and that was what they found in their research. So I think you do have to start at the place of security. And then from there, we can we can layer on a lot of different ideas and concepts. So I'm with you, man. I'm going to change my answer. Thanks for that. That's good. Well, I appreciate you, you know, being honest about it. I was just really challenged by what you're saying too, just to reflect personally on your own experience to examine, okay, like, do I recognize when other people might not feel that same amount of safety as I do in this group or on this, uh, on this team? I think that's such a powerful question for coaches to ask themselves, right? Okay. Am I aware of it? Um, and am I being intentional about helping create an environment where, where they do feel that. Cause I think most coaches, they want their, they want their players to, to feel like, cause I really do believe, I mean, most coaches I think are in it for the right reasons. I think there's a lot of things that get in the way of it, but yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, that was my last question, but I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready for them? I am. I typically am. I might give you some, I don't knows here because rapid fires, I was like, yeah, I, I'm a polarity guy. I'm an and thinker. So it's, it's going to be hard if you want one words, but we'll, no, it's okay. It doesn't have to be one word. You can add some nuance to it. I'm great awesome. with that. You'll get some context. Then. Yeah. Here you go. Here's my first one. Who is your favorite coach that you have? It, maybe you played for them or maybe they're a business coach, any coach that you've experienced their coaching, who is your favorite coach and describe them in three words. So are these people that I know, or, or can they be people that I don't know? Sure. It can be people you don't know. <laughs> okay. Ted Lasso count. Can I? Yes. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I think what, what I love about Ted Lasso and the, the three adjectives would be optimistic, compassionate, open-minded. So good. And if you're a coach listening to the show and you haven't, watch Ted Lasso, just turn this off right now and go watch it. Uh, my wife and I have watched it through three times. No lie. Three times through already. There was one, I had a friend come in town who's also a coach and we watched 
episode one through 10 in one sitting, five straight hours. It was fantastic. He hadn't seen it yet. I was like, dude, this is, we have to do this. Like there's nothing else that matters with our time. We must sit down and watch the show. So that's fantastic. Great answer. Here's my next one. The thing I enjoy most about coaching is. So for me, the word coach has a different meaning than for you, because I consider myself to be a coach in two facets, mental performance coaching and executive coaching. And so it's, it's a different role of a coach, but at the end of the day, what I enjoy most about it is helping people get from where they are to where they want to go. That's fantastic. The worst leadership advice I've ever received is. Can I give the best leadership advice or is that going to be another question? No, that's great. You can do that. (laughs) The best advice that I've ever gotten is to not give advice until you've asked for permission first. Um, and it's for sports coaches, it's different because they're in the business of giving people real time advice on how to do things. But for the rest of us in the real world, like we're so quick to give advice to people without asking if they want it. And in the sport, once again, in sports, like if you're on a team, it's, it's a given that the sports coach is there to give advice. And I get that. But for everything else, like we're so quick to give advice without asking someone, Hey, do you want my thoughts on this? Do you want my advice? I think that's often what gets in the way of a lot of relationships and it impacts how the receiver hears the feedback. Um, Cause if I ask someone, Hey, can I give you advice? They almost always say yes. But if I just spit my advice at them, they often become defensive. And um, so now I got that advice from someone and I said that that's the best advice I've ever, I've ever received. That's good. And and you said that it's baked into coaching and sports, but I would say that that is incredible advice for coaches too. I've even used it just asking a player, Hey, can I coach you on something really quick? And most of the time they're like, what, what, but just asking permission, Hey, can I give you feedback on something? They'll be taken back. But then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, yeah. And it just shows like, I'm here to help you. I want to, I want to help you. I'm here for you to help you improve. So I think that's a super powerful question well, and for coaches and, to ask. And Luke, Every coach, hopefully that's listening to this, wants to cultivate relationships with their people. If you're a coach, you're in the human relationship business. I really think that that's a truth. So part of your job is also going to be one-on-ones. They could be informal. They could be formal, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, Brad Stevens, who's a coach who I've been able to chat with, who I didn't mention with Ted Lasso, but someone who I have immense respect for, like he is very intentional about the one-on-ones and the information that he's giving to his players. And I think those meetings, like you can ask them, Hey, can I, can I show you something or can I share something with you? And you're just asking for permission. It's, it's, it's very rare that someone will say no. It's very rare. Yeah, absolutely. Here's my last one for you. I know I'm successful as a coach when there's so many ways I want to go. So I'm trying to pick the right path because it really depends on who I'm coaching and what, what their role is. I'll tell you, I don't determine success to be how well they play or they perform or the record. Um, Like I often, so for the athletes I work with, I have them teach me everything that they've learned Um, that, is usually a good sign that like, Hey, they acquired some stuff. Another way is like, if I get an email five years from now saying that, Hey, this really helped me, that is really fulfilling. 
if I can just help people to think a little differently, I think that is success. Um, ultimately, if I help them, I think this is how I'd answer it because I'm, I'm wrestling. Those are the paths that I'm wrestling with to answer your question without having a distinct answer on what seems like a pretty simple question. I think for me, I determine success by if they cultivate skills inside themselves and talent inside themselves that they didn't know they had and are able to apply those in multiple areas of their life. So when I get a call that says, hey, Brian, this really helped me land a new job. Or when I get a call from an executive who said, my marriage is better because of this. Or, you know, they're better at their thing, but when it actually spreads to other areas, man, that, that that's pretty awesome. But it's a weird question for me to answer as a coach because I don't really think about my success as what they do. I think their success is their success. So that's probably why I'm struggling with this. A long time ago, I had to disassociate myself from their success and their failures, by the way, too. I mean, I've worked with a lot of athletes who have had massive struggles in their sport, executives who had had struggles. Like that's part of working with people. So that's probably why I have a hard time because for me, it's about what I bring. Did I bring curiosity? Was I open-minded? Was I open to possibilities for them? Was I supportive? Did I show up? And so for me, the success is really about how I operate. It's not necessarily about the things that they give back to me. Um, those things are like icing on the cake, but the foundation of how I determine success is based on, am I meeting my own standards? Am I showing up the way that I expect myself to show up? Now, when I get that feedback that I am, it definitely feels good, but I have to look myself in the mirror every day and say, am I doing what I set out to do? And, and that's probably, it's probably more of an internal dialogue without sounding like I'm some altruistic human. Like I love winning. I love competing. I love when I get a text from someone or I love when teams win championships or companies grow or they get a promotion. Like, trust me, I love that stuff as much as the next person, but I've worked really hard to not fall in love with that and deem that to be how successful I am. I, that was a really convoluted answer, but no, it's good. It's, it's honest. I, I think it's, it's really important for anyone that is involved in other people's performance. Cause you're involved in that. Well, Brian, this has been awesome. Uh, before we hop off, tell people where they can connect with you and, and find your book and any of your resources. Yeah. So our company is called strong skills. So you can find us at strongskills.co at strongskills.co. And everything there. The book's there. You can find me on social media at Brian Levinson. The two places I probably play the most are Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, so that's the other place. And the book's called Shift Your Mind. Would love for people to read it. Podcast is called Intentional Performers. Um, and just really grateful for what you're up to, Luke. I think your mission is really powerful and important, and I think our world needs it. And so I'm so excited to see what you create and happy to help however I can as you continue to change the world a little bit at a time. So go get them. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Brian for coming on the podcast. You can find links to anything that Brian mentioned in the show details of the episode. And as always, if you want to get a free seven page PDF of the notes from this podcast episode, go to coachesclubpod.com or just click the link in the show details. 
And if you want to sign up for the next round of free virtual book clubs on the Coach's Guide to Teaching, go to cgtbookclubs.com to claim a spot before the book clubs kick off. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.